And we are in, actually, the book of Exodus. You could turn there with me. We have been studying through the book of, uh, excuse me, Acts together for uh, several months. Uh, The consistent and uh, regular preaching diet of the church is going through books of the Bible, uh, which we do most of the time. But there are times like summer attendance is down, maybe a little holidays, Christmas. We take a break from going through systematically through a book, and we'll do an important thematic series. Last Easter, we did a series, a five-part series on the atonement. All that Jesus had accomplished on the cross where he he died to pay uh, the penalty and the debt for our sin, absorbing the Father's wrath, uh, taking our sin upon him and then rising from the dead. How important that is central to the Christian faith. This summer, we're doing a jet tour through the book of, uh, I don't even say the book of, but through the life of Moses in Exodus. We're calling this series, The Gospel According to Moses. We're calling that series because it has rightly been called, Moses has rightly been called the mediator or at least the redeemer of the Old Testament. He has, has typified and foreshadowed Jesus and the gospel in so many ways. In the United States, we talk about the three main um, automobile producers, at least it used to be, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, the big three. I think in the Old Testament, we would say, or at least a good argument, that it would be Abraham, David, and Moses. And that's our focus for the next few weeks. It's absolutely difficult to overemphasize the importance of Moses in the unfolding plan in our salvation, the gospel. Moses is parallel to Jesus, who was the mediator of the Old Testament, and now Jesus, the mediator of the new and better covenant. The word exodus means a going out. A departure. It appears really the first time it appears in the book is in verse uh, chapter 19. It says in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt. That verb left, that especially in the Greek, means to depart. That's where Exodus gets its, its name, the departure, the going out. It's an epic tale. It really is. An epic journey from slavery to salvation. It's an epic tale of fire and smoke and wind and water taking place in in Egypt under the the pyramids and the hot sun of the Egyptian land. It is difficult to talk about Exodus in one theme, although Philip Riken, he's the current president now of Wheaton College, I think he was at uh, 10th Press where Montgomery Boyce used to be, he just sums it up saying the book of Exodus is about this, is the theme, saved for God's glory. Or I put it, the redeeming work of God for his glory and our good. The redeeming work of God, book of Exodus, the redeeming work of God for his glory and our good. And the book opens up with two mighty nations. You have Israel and you have Egypt. Two big, prolific leaders. You have Pharaoh and and, and Moses. Pharaoh, the enslaving villain. Moses, the liberator. Almost like a masterpiece. Almost like it should be made into a movie. Baby in the basket, a burning bush, a a river of blood. There's plagues and frogs and locusts. Angel of death crossing the Red Sea. The manna, the water from the rock, the the pillar of fire by night, the golden calf, the the glory, that Shekinah glory in the tabernacle. The actual Exodus story for the Jewish people defines their very existence. I want you to feel that. For the Jewish people, this, this exodus defines their very existence, how God rescued them and made them his people. For the Christian, it's the Old Testament gospel. 
God's great act of redemption. It is the story that gives every captive, every slave freedom and the hope of freedom. If you notice, many of you do, I'm sure, but maybe some of you don't, Exodus is situated in the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy called the Pentateuch. Pente, five, two books, writings. It's the first five books of Moses. It's also referred as the Torah, which means instruction, okay? But what's important as we open up the book of Exodus is to know, and this is really important, that it is intimately connected to Genesis, okay? It's very important you see that. In fact, Exodus should be seen as a continuing story of the book of Genesis. We've been looking through Acts, and we're at chapter 18 where we took our break. Acts is a continuing story of who? Come on. The gospel according to? And Jesus, yes, right. So Luke says this is what Jesus did while he was here, all the work he's done. Acts is what he continues to do through his church. It's one story, two volumes, right? We've been saying that. Well, Genesis is that way too, and the five books are that way. It's five stories, one volume, one book. So Genesis is a continuation of that. And although there's been a significant time between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, Exodus is essentially the story, the narratives, of the parallel between, uh, or, the, or the partial fulfillment, I should say, of the Abrahamic covenant that was made by God to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Actually, if you open up your book, your Bible, if you don't have some, they're in the back. Exodus chapter 1, in your Bible, it says, these are the names. That's not correct. It's hard to, to write that in Hebrew, but the first word in the book of Exodus is the word, Hebrew word, and. And showing its connection to Genesis and the names of the sons of Israel. Genesis picks up, ends off, Exodus picks up. And that's important, and I'll tell you why. Number one, as we look at the life of Moses, we have to see that it's a continuum of God's redemption. The work of the gospel that began immediately after the fall in Genesis 3. We've covered this, we're in Genesis, when we study the book of Genesis, verse by verse. The promise that God made to Adam, to us, in Genesis 3, verse 15, has been historically called the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now we know, according to the New Testament, particularly Galatians 3 and 4, that this seed, this offspring of the woman, is Jesus. And although he will be you know, seriously harmed, he will fatally and ultimately crush Satan. And God, in Genesis 3, speaks in the midst of chaos. He speaks in the midst of sin and death and division and judgment and separation and says this, I will save you. I will repair the mess I made, the mess you've made. That's the good news. That's the first gospel. Second, so Genesis, excuse me, Exodus is a continuation of Genesis 3.15, God's promise in the midst of chaos, I will keep my promises, okay? Exodus also traces, excuse me, Genesis also traces that lineage, you remember? It went from Genesis 3.15 to the covenant that God made with Abraham. He made a covenant with him. In fact, in Genesis 12, God told Abraham during this covenant-making time, You're going to Egypt, and in there you will be enslaved, and I will set you free. Way back in Genesis 12. Way back in Genesis 12. And what we see Exodus unfolding is that very story, how God will draw them out, that's what Exodus is all about, and liberate them from this bondage. 
So the book of Exodus details this bondage and, and demonstrates the faithfulness of God. Liberating people, liberating his people, fulfilling his promise, fulfilling his covenantal promise, both in Genesis 3.15 and to Abraham, okay? And make no mistake about it, as we, as we study these, these six narratives, um, God is the one who's the hero of this story. God is the one who's the hero of the story. God is the one who reveals himself to Moses, the great I am. God is the one who hears the cries of his people in bondage and has pity on them in their suffering. God is the one who raises up a deliverer, a redeemer to save them. God is the one who, who sends the plagues, who divides the sea, who, who drowns Pharaoh's army. God is the one who provides bread in the ma- in the, from heaven and water from the rock. God is the one who gives his covenantal law, covenantal uh, promises and, and law to, to Moses on the mountain. God is the one who fills the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. So God is the hero of every story, every narrative. Okay? You got that? All right. So that's where we're at. So with that introduction, I, I want to look briefly at Exodus. We're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to do um, Exodus 1, 2, and 3, verse by verse for four and a half hours. No, what we're going to do is I'm going to look at the three narratives and just draw one principle. All right, just draw one principle from chapters 1, 2, and 3, one from each chapter, and, 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 and we'll close it uh, at that. So this is where we're at. Person encounter, okay? Three principles, three chapters. The first is the beginning story, Genesis, uh, Exodus 1, teaches us about the good providence of God and our captivity, our slavery, chapter 1. Chapter 2 teaches us about the birth of Moses and it shows us the good providence of God and his promises, that God keeps his promises. Chapter 3, the burning bush, reveals the good providence of God and his presence. Okay, if you take an uh, outline, there you go, right there. That, that's, our, that's our story. Okay, number one. Exodus one. Let me, let me first, before we go any further, let me just first define the providence. If you don't get that, you're not going to follow me for the rest of the time we're together. So providence. What does it mean we say God's providence, God's good providence? Okay, it's not the place that we visit, okay? God's providence, okay, is this. Number one, you know in Scripture, I want you to know in Scripture, that God declares himself throughout Scripture as the sovereign, omnipotent Lord God over the universe. Okay? He has the right, he has the power, he has the authority to govern all things for his good and holy and wise purposes. God is sovereign. How God does that how God oversees, how God superintends is called providence, okay? So we can divine providence as this, as the work of God's sovereign, omnipotent power moving all of history to fulfill all of his intended purposes, namely salvation, redemption, reconciliation, we'll see that, for all creation. So it's the way God does what he has sovereignly declared will take place. Okay, does that make sense? You need to follow me on that. That's his providence. We're going to see it clearly in, in Exodus, so if you're not quite sure. So it's important to remember, we open up the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 1. Um, the book opens up. Israel had entered Egypt hundreds of years earlier. When they had gone to Egypt, they were full of hope. They were full of, of promise. There was, um, there was joy for the future. 
right? God had chosen Israel out of his sovereignty to be uh, his, their God, his people. Uh, they were descendants of Abraham. They were heirs to the covenant promises. They find themselves in Egypt. Also, if you remember from Genesis, that when they entered into Egypt, it was because God told them to go there. So when Exodus opens up, Israel is in Egypt, and the reason they're in Egypt, one of the reasons is, God tells them to go to Egypt. Exodus, excuse me, Genesis 46. He says to Jacob in a visit, at night, in a vision, I am the God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid. Now remember, they're in Canaan. Genesis 46, they're in Canaan. God tells them, comes at night, speaks to Jacob, the patriarch of the family, and says, listen, this is what I want you to do. I'm the God of your father. Don't be afraid. Go to Egypt. I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again to the land of promise. He tells Jacob that. But if you remember from Genesis, from that story, when he has that vision, the reason is because the Israelites in Canaan had a severe famine upon the land. You remember that? There's a severe famine and people are going to die. When we say famine, we don't mean we haven't had breakfast, okay? Famine there, they're eating people like it's bad. People are dying in the street. It's really bad. It's famine. Biblical famine is, is horrendous. So there's famine in the land and God tells them, listen, leave the land, go to Egypt. If you also remember, the reason they were food in Egypt is because Joseph was there, Jacob's son. Jacob's other sons beat him up, threw him in the pit. Remember the story? Coat of colors. Drags him out. They sell him to Egypt. Potiphar's wife, the whole story. And all of a sudden, by God's good providential hand, Joseph rises to power, collects all this food, stores it in storehouses, and then God comes to Jacob, his father, in Canaan and says, go to Egypt. He don't even know it's his son yet. Okay, that, that's the story as Genesis ends. You remember that? And God's works through this incredible circumstances and, and through this cruel and terrible actions of the brothers, Joseph's in charge. And he finds himself, through other trials and difficulties, the providence of God. He's in, like, he's in great power. He was in prison. You know the story. And it was during that famine that Jacob gets his vision and moves his family to Egypt where he finds his son, Jacob, excuse me, Joseph, alive. A lot of Joseph, Jacob's Exodus. I'm going to try to keep it straight, okay? Exodus 1 opens up with the genealogies of the sons of Israel. The genealogy, same genealogy we find in the, toward the end of Genesis. Verse 5. All, he says, the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons when they went there. Joseph was already in Egypt. He was sold into slavery. Then Joseph died, right? And all his brothers and all his generation. In other words, everyone had died off. But the people, while they're in Egypt, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew and exceedingly strong so that the land, that's the land of Egypt, was filled with them. Direct quote, a direct promise, a direct fulfillment of Abraham that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12 and 17. I will make you a great nation. I will increase your family. He tells him that. He says, you're going to have a land. There's going to be a great lineage, and the Lord himself, Genesis 3.15, that seed will come through your descendants. Those are the three promises. We see partially fulfilled right there. They're growing, they're prosperous. Hundreds of years go by, and they're just taking over the place. Verse 8, we read something else is about to change. A new king arose over, over Egypt. 
we don't have a name, who did not know Joseph. Hundreds of years have passed, he doesn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many, are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if, you're, and if war breaks out, we're in trouble. They join our enemies and fight against us, we're done. There'll be no escape from the land. So this new Pharaoh comes to power and he's like, look, you know what? There's a lot of Jewish people running around here. Like, we got to do something. Because if we get into a fight, they're going to come against us. We're losing our land. So let's do something. And verse 14 tells us what some of that is. He says in verse 14, their lives became bitter, hard work, right? In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, underline that in your Bible. That's an important passage. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's, it, it has the same Hebrew word like six times in the passage. It says, and their lives were bitter and they were serving hard. It's about serving. Not just working, it's about serving. That's the word, serve. In mortar and brick and all kinds of serving, they were serving in the field. In their serving, they ruthlessly made them serve as slaves. Now, don't miss that point. The Israelites made it clear. Exodus 1 opens up with the Israelites are no longer free to worship and serve the one true God, but now they're in bondage to another king, another place, another land, a foreign nation. And what we witness here in the beginning is that by and through the cruel hands of the Egyptians is the beginning of God's good providence, that he will deliver them from misery, from slavery, from bondage, from serving false gods. It's not really so much an ethnical thing, which we will see, or or a social thing. It's really a spiritual thing. What's going on is a spiritual battle going on. Of course, we know who wins. That's the point. But the principle in Exodus and all the Bible is this. That's the point. Here's the principle, okay? Excuse me. Slavery, slavery is serving and worshiping anything more important than God. Treasuring something, someone with greater treasure than God. And one of the main narratives in the book of Exodus to show us that without God's intervention, without God's good providence, we'll never be free. We'll never be free. We'll always be slaves. Now, some of you thinking, slaves, really? 2014, Glenmont, slaves? Do you know that Moses never goes back to Pharaoh and says, let my people go? Some of you thinking, yes, he does. No, he doesn't. I know Charleston had said that, but he doesn't. What Moses goes back and tells Pharaoh over and over again is, let my people go so that they may serve me. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let my people go so that they may sacrifice to me. It's not just let me go because I just want to leave. It's so that they may worship me. Jesus said it clear. Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Second Peter 2, the promise, they promise you freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For, whoever, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now listen, all of us live for something. All of us live for something. All of us are seeking, all of us are clinging to, all of us are running to something or someone that will give us meaning, that will give us some sort of significance and security as a person. All of us are doing it. Some of you thinking, no, 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 you know, uh, that's not me. I'm not enslaved to anything. 
Because when we think of slavery, we think of, of, of maybe in the 1900s, you know, or we think of slavery to cocaine and drugs. That, that may be true, but that's, that's not all of it. Okay, that's not all of it. You and I are enslaved. I'm enslaved. You're enslaved. By anything that I place in my life that's more central, more significant, more substantial, more important, more glorious, more treasurable than God himself. Putting them in the place that only God should occupy. How do I do that? Ask yourself this question. I think Tim Keller is the one that first asked this question. He says this, you want to know what idols are in your life? You want to know what's most important in your life? You want to know what you're trusting in? Ask this question. What is it in your life that you look at and say in the very depths of your heart, if I obtain that, then I'll feel that my life finally has meaning. I'll know that I have value, then I'll feel significant, and I'll feel secure. I'll know I'm somebody. Now watch this. Whatever that is, it controls you. Whatever that is, you can't live without, becomes a place of worship for you, for me. Not necessarily falling down and singing to it, but it's the controlling position in your life that moves and arouses and attracts your attention, your passion, joy and anger, your energy, your money. It says, if I have this, power, money, relationship, husband, wife, children, health, figures, uh, certain relationships, I know I'll be somebody. I'll know I'll be whole. Okay, some of you are still not with me. Let's get practical. Think about your work. Maybe you're a student working hard. Maybe you're an employee or a business owner. Do you work so much? Are you trying so hard to make it that you don't have time for deep relationships? That your family is ignored? What are you pursuing? Or think about people who want to be well-liked. Do you fear someone's disapproval so much that you can't face disappointment? What about stuff? Is there a certain amount, certain level, certain place you want to be with, with material things that then you will feel that your life has meaning? Wealth, finance, security, success. I'll know I'm somebody. What about your image? We make our idol image. Do you, do you find that your life has meaning if you look a certain way? If I make it my goal something I must have in order to feel whole, worthwhile, and valued as a person, whatever it is, it enslaves. You know what's true? Because when you don't get it, or when it's taken from you, or when it's threatened, you just don't feel sad, you disintegrate. Loss is a sense of loss of self. I mean, losing things and, and, and hurt should come, but not destruction. When your heart is such in a place of serving something else other than God, you're in deep trouble when it's taken. There's anxiety, there's stress, there's trauma, there is worry, there's slavery to that object. Salvation, according to Exodus, shows us that we are enslaved and that only by God's good providential intervention can we be free. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot justify ourselves. Our hearts are in slavery to those things. And before we move on, let me just say this. Some of, I think, the American way is... Um, I'm not going to be enslaved to anything. I'll be a slave unto myself. Right? So nothing will enslave me. Remember, Moses didn't say, let my people go so they can go into the wilderness and do whatever they want. Exodus teaches us that only one can set us free. And there's only one who is worthy of worship, surrendering our life to. Only one 
And only if God, now catch this, only if God is most important thing in your life, only when his love is the foundational, listen, the fundamental foundation of your security and his pleasures, the basis of your significance, will you be free. That's the paradox of the Christian life. One is never free until one is totally submissive to God. Freedom, rescue, deliverance, and your exodus from slavery are not complete until it's find its destiny, its final conclusion in the worship of God. That's what Exodus 1 teaches us. And until we are overwhelmed by the, by the love of God and behold him as the most glorious and treasure him as the ultimate treasure, you're in slavery and bondage. Exodus 1 opens up with bondage and slavery. Do you know Exodus 40, the end of the book, there is worship. The Shekinah glory comes down. There is worship. There is deliverance that God delivers his people so that they may worship him. Your exodus, my exodus out of slavery is not done until it finds its goal in worship and service to God and God alone. Then you'll be free. And the beginning of exodus is showing us that we are all slaves and that God is the one who's able to set us free. He's working on our behalf in his goodness, in his good providence to redeem us from bondage, to serve the true and the living God. That's chapter one. Chapter two, we see again God's providence, his rescue, his fulfillment of his promises. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice in the end of Exodus one, not only were they being treated ruthlessly and in slavery and beaten and, and, and faced all kinds of, of, of trials and difficulties, now Pharaoh has an has a decree, and he wants to murder all the sons of the Hebrew women. Pharaoh persecuted the Jews. The Jews grew under that persecution, and that did not make a happy king. He's like, what we're doing to them, well, how do they have time to have more kids? That's what he's saying, right? He feared military challenge. So he gets a plan. Look at Exodus 1 again, verse 15. The king says to the Hebrew midwives, of whom was named Shifra and the other one Pua, great names if you're thinking about it, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, let them live. The Hebrew midwives, though, didn't go for it. They feared God, the Bible says, and they refused. And he got more and more aggravated. He got more and more angry. Verse 22 of chapter 1, if you're reading along with me. He said, then Pharaoh said, all right, if they're not going to listen, every son that is born to the Hebrews, he tells all his people, cast them into the Nile, verse 22 of chapter 1. But you shall let every daughter live. So everyone dies. All the girls live. I'm not taking this thing lightly, and I'm going to persecute. And the chapter ends... With this order, throw the babies in the Nile River. Chapter 2 opens up in the midst of, again, cruel, hardship, suffering, persecution. God's hand is still working in the history of Israel by preserving the life of one child. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. Now remember what land we're in. Kill boys. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and pitumen. Did I get that right, Bill? Okay. Pitumen, he's the construction guy, and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. 
So things are really bad, really bleak. The providence and promise of God was being planted and blossoming with this one child. And his name, verse 10, is Moses. God required, used a leader, a mediator, that God would deliver them. And he chose Moses, verse 10. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses means. So Moses, check this out. Think about this for a minute, right? Track with me. Moses comes into the world at what seemingly, humanly speaking, at the worst possible time. They're killing Hebrew boys, right? They're throwing them in the Nile to kill them. But it is from that river, that river of death, God brings forth life and redemption and deliverance. The power of God's providence and the way he keeps his promises, we've seen all through Genesis, clearly in Exodus 2. God takes what was death and brings life out of it. Only God can do that. And he does it through many women in the Old Testament, which is absolutely amazing. He actually names the midwives. Do you notice that in chapter 1? Women were marginalized. Women were, were, were uh, totally marginalized. To have the women's names in that chapter and not even mention who the king was is not an accident. And God uses these ladies, these godly, God-fearing women to, to, to rescue Moses. First, it was, as I said, the midwives. Next, we see the mom. The mom's like, yo, he's really nice, I want to keep him. He's too old, like three more months. I can't hide him, so I'll put him in the, in, in the Nile and we'll hide him there. Now, I don't know. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to put your baby in a little thing and send him in the river. I don't know if some of you do that. I guess maybe if, if death was the other option, you would say, well, maybe that makes a little sense. Maybe she knew that Pharaoh's daughter was going, you know, love to bathe there, and she was hoping. I don't know. But either way, the hand of God's providence in preserving Moses is clear. So you had the midwives, you had mom, and then sis, chapter 2, verse 4. Sister comes along, and she's by a distance. She's waiting, and she's watching. All of a sudden, these pharaohs, uh, women, and pharaoh comes along the bank. Verse 5, now the daughter of pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. She opened it up, and she saw it was a child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. And she said, this is one of the Hebrew children. She should then say, kill him. But she feels sorry for him. She has pity for him. That's the hand of God. I'll tell you that right now. Verse 7. The sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? I mean, you know pretty smart i i know who the baby is i know who the mother is i'm not telling you but you know what that baby needs uh, some food and since you feel pity why don't i go find somebody smart girl verse eight pharaoh's daughter said sure go the girl went and called the child's mother go mom and pharaoh's daughter said to her take this child away and nurse him for me and i will give you your wages breastfeeding with benefits i mean that's good right there right so so the women took the child and nursed him when he grew older, though, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he, Moses, became her son. Talk about the providence of God. Wow. And by the end of chapter 2, we read this. Go down all the way to the bottom, verse 23. 
it says this. Look, it says, during those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned even more because of their slavery, and they cried for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, I want us to really see this, that God is working through accomplishing his plans through suffering and hardship. You see that? By keeping them in bondage, Pharaoh actually helped them become a nation. Okay, in a book, Dan McCartney wrote a book called, he's a professor, Why Does It Have to Hurt? And this is what he writes. He's a New Testament scholar. He said, God saw the suffering of his people and then delivered them. But why did he allow the suffering to be happen in the first place? Could he not rather have simply prevented it? McCartney answers his own question with a question. He says, if he had done so, would the Israelites have ever desired to leave Egypt? Ah, good question. It was hard enough to get them to leave even when they were suffering. Egypt was the only home they had ever known, and it was not without its luxury. So it took suffering and bondage to make God's people cry out for their salvation. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, what he writes. Very simple. In order to cut loose the bonds that bound them to Egypt, the sharp knife of affliction must be used. And Pharaoh, though he knew it not, was God's instrument in weaning them from the Egyptian world and helping them as his church to take up their separate place in the wilderness and receive the portion which God had appointed for them. Ah, what does that mean? Here's the principle. God can be trusted in the most arduous times because he is working ultimately for his glory and our deliverance and good, no matter what. Anyone who's been a Christian longer than about three minutes knows full well that there are no guarantees to immunity from this broken world that we live in, the plagues of humanity. Too many people, Christians and non-Christians, preach and think that when you become a Christian, bad things won't happen to you. You see some of these gospel, uh, prosperity gospel guys. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. Paul does not say that nothing bad will happen. Or that everything bad uh, will, will somehow is not bad, it's good. It's bad. That's not what he says. He writes, whatever does happen will somehow eventually work out for good. This might mean temporary suffering for the Christian, right? Or at least what it means if you, if you lived through any amount of time, through any suffering and pain, at least the exercise, the working of Christ treasuring, Christ exalting patience in your life, Right? We may see this now. We may, we may know what God's up to in the moment. We may not never know what God is up to. But that does not nullify clearly in Scripture God's promise to care for his people and the direction in their paths. Now, he's not just saying suck it up, be, you know, be naive, you're not really hurting. No, it hurts. But most Christians, I think, that God does not necessarily deliver us from the circumstances delivers us through the circumstances. In Exodus 2, God did not reign over Moses' birth despite Pharaoh's edict to kill the babies, but through it. 
It was not as if the Lord reacted to the decree and saying, oh my word, Moses, uh, excuse me, Pharaoh just is going to kill the boys. What am I going to do now? Rather, it is precisely by means of that decree that God brings deliverance to his people. I want you to see that. God is in full control over Moses' birth, the external circumstances surrounding Moses, all those things under his control. God does not remove Moses from the situation, though he could have. God does not strike down Pharaoh, although he could have. Instead, God places Moses in the same Nile that Pharaoh intends for the boy's harm, but it brings the boy to Pharaoh's courts. Having him raised in Pharaoh's house, things go, get worse and worse and worse. And you know, if you're anything like me, it's when things go really bad, you think, where is God? Where is God? Does he care? Does he hear? Let me tell you. Let me tell you. When God seems absent, he is not. He is working for good and justice. Let, let, me, let me just say this and we'll move on to the next point. And I've said this before. I, I just think it's, it's it, and it's not, I don't know where I picked it up somewhere. If you are in an arduous, difficult trial in your life, and you cannot see anything good coming from it, and therefore declare nothing good can come from that, with due respect, that's very arrogant. The sovereign Lord is in charge. Just because we don't see, and we never see, and we may never see, does not mean that God is not working. To say that I don't see it, therefore it's not so, is an arrogant statement. Okay? So what we learn, that God is working, we see it in the birth of Moses, his providence, his moving in, in, in all of history, and that he keeps his promises. If you read Genesis at all, you know that was some twisted, jacked-up family going on in Genesis, and God kept his promises. Okay? All right, so let's go, let's go on. I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to move on. Number three. The burning bush reveals the good providence of God, okay? So up to now, we looked at chapter one and two. Up to now, uh, God really is, is invisible. It's the invisible hand of God. He's moving. We see his hand. We know the end of the story. He's mentioned in chapter one a little bit. He's mentioned at the end of chapter two, but it's really the invisible providence of God. We know the end. But here in chapter three, everything changes. God is going to deliver the Israelites from bondage and slavery. If he does so, he's going to have to change the heart of Moses. He's going to have a personal encounter with Moses. Chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now just... Just two things I want to point out in this text and we'll conclude, okay? First, notice the circumstances surrounding Moses' life. Moses is a fugitive. That's why he's in the wilderness, okay? He's a fugitive. He's on the run. Moses, in chapter 2, gets between an Egyptian, you know the story, and the beating, his beating of a Hebrew when he steps in. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 12 says, Moses stepped in between these two people, and this is what it says. I, I love this. You know this is true. You know this the Bible goes, you wouldn't write this about yourself, right? Moses looked this way, and he looked that way, chapter 2, verse 12. And seeing no one around, he struck the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. 
People argue, was Moses doing the right thing? Was he justified or not? I'm not going to get into that, but he was looking around. Nobody was looking, and then he buried him in the sand. It's sort of like going fishing, right, with, with, with cement boots. We're going to go out. Don't worry. I know it's heavy. Like, really? You know, something's not right. So he's out, and, he, and, he, and, he's, and he's, you know, <laughs> we don't know if it's heroic or not, but all I know is that act, what he did, sent Moses away from Egypt to Midian. He becomes a fugitive. And because at the heat of the moment, he kills him. And he's on the run. And he's in the wilderness. It's there where God meets him face to face. Well, bush to face. Look at the text. It says that he encountered, happened in the wilderness on Herob, the mountain of God. Now, the exact spot is not known. Most theologians will say that the Mount of Herob was Mount Sinai, where he would later receive the law. So he's in the wilderness on Mount Sinai. The day probably begun like any other day, right? He's feeding his sheep. He's walking around. He's going through the wilderness. He's looking for a place to go, right? I mean, he's just tending his sheep. He's minding his own business. But this is not some happenstance encounter. God did not meet Moses where Moses was, but God brought Moses. You know that to the place where God was. It was by God's sovereign providence that led Moses to this place all of his life. And let me tell you this, if you're seeking God, it is because God is already seeking you. If you are seeking God, God is already seeking you. And many times we come to in the encounter of God, we have that life-changing moment, that life-changing encounter while we were in the wilderness, amen? We're in the wilderness. It's there where Israel was taught, God taught them that he's not just some add-on vitamin supplement, that they need him, they, they have to rely upon him. Because when, when there's dryness of our souls, when there's dryness of our souls, we learn that without God, all the wells dry up, all the bread gets moldy. In the wilderness, we come face-to-face with a very simple truth. We are utterly dependent on God for our salvation and our freedom. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Listen, when we think everything's going wrong, it's going wrong many times to force us to look at things, force us to contemplate things, force us deeper into our understanding of who God is. The way of the wilderness is when everything collapses your pseudo-salvation, your justification, the thing you're counting on, that, that, that thing that drove the dry shaft of your heart comes crashing down, and then, and only then when you realize, then you can meet the true king, the true God. Moses, the fugitives, tossed out of the land, in the wilderness, meets God. Number two, notice who God is, verse two. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, man, I'll turn aside to see this great sight. The NIV, if you have an NIV, the strange sight, great word. Why the bushes and burning? Verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, here am I, he says. And I want you to notice it's it's not the God of Moses' imagination. It's It's not who Moses thinks God is. It is Moses, it is who God says he is. The bushes don't consume. That doesn't happen. And here's the big picture. In in this personal account that we see clearly that God cannot be understood through imagination, philosophy, philosophy, it has to be revelation. 
It has to be God revealing himself. Because the God that you think about, the God that you desire, the God that you want, is the God of your own mind. It's really just you. That's all he is. He's really just you. And he can't contradict you. He can't speak to you in love. He can't oppose you because he's just you. He can't forgive you. He can't feel, may help you feel not guilty when you've sinned. And burning bushes challenges him, challenges us to the things we are enslaved to. But notice, he's not only uh, uh, this challenge of who he is, but notice what he is in this text. He's fire. Verse 5, he's holy. He said, do not come near. Moses, don't come near. Take off your sandals. Take them off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Fire becomes, that physical miracle becomes a spiritual truth. Even before Moses finds out who this God is, God shows him in the burning bush. Moses would say later on, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. It points to God's omnipotent power over creation. It points to his glory. It points to his manifestation of his splendor. Like the bush never running out of energy. God never dims. His beauty never fades. God is seen over and over in scripture as fire. He represented uh, the, the fire pot. Remember in Genesis 15, Sinai, the fire descends from the, from the mountain. Hebrews 12 says, we worship the Lord in reverence and fear, for God is a consuming fire. Why? Fire will consume, right? Fire consumes, fire melts. Fire disintegrates. Fire is, is, is all-consuming. This bush is clearly the manifestation of God. But what's so cool about fire, not only is it all-consuming, just ravishing, it's also beautiful, isn't it? It's also very beautiful. It is also appealing, breathtaking. How many of you have fire pits, right? In the summertime, you're building fires. I have a fireplace in my house. My wife and I love to light the fire. We open up the doors and watch the fire. So it's both all-consuming and wonderful. It is both this unapproachableness, but yet you want to draw near to it. It is both breathtaking and appealing, yet dangerously deadly and terrifying. Here is God's presence. And God says, come close. He's allowed to come close. This real, true, biblical God who is burning with holiness, who's separate, who can't touch or see or come near sin. That's what holiness, otherness. He can't embrace evil. He can't embrace sin. He's all-consuming fire is burning with passion and eternal love that desires for us to know him. Moses, come here. Moses, come here. You're standing in a fatal zone, though. I need to tell you, this is holy ground, but I want you to know me. But I am holy. I am perfect. I am otherness. I can't deal with sin. Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. And he doesn't melt, right? And Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, when the ark opens up, Moses is able to, to come near to God. And he talks to God, and God talks to him, verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hides his face because he's afraid. I don't blame him. He said, I see the affliction. I see the suffering. I'm going to deliver, verse 8, out of your hands, out of, the, out of you know, them out of your hands. He, Moses says to him, verse 11, who should I say? Who 
Who should I save? If you want me to go to Pharaoh, you want me to deliver, who should I save? Verse 12, I will be with you. It will be a sign for you who have sent me. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve me. You shall serve God on this mountain. Verse 13, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel, the God of your fathers, who should I say sent me? What is your name? What should I say? God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. There it is. I'm not the God you think I am, but I am the God I am. There are many gods in Canaan, many gods in Egypt that they worship, but this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were to worship the one true God. Now, the word I am means three, at least three things. One, he is the one who is exist independently and he is the self-existent one right god's not a been never been created he is the creator he has never been created right so he's not a creator he doesn't need anything from us he doesn't need anything to exist he doesn't need anything to accomplish his will he is independent self-exalted i am also means it's unchangeable which means god doesn't change he doesn't grow in knowledge he doesn't grow in wisdom he's unchangeable What he is in the beginning, he will be now, he will be always and forever. He's also eternal. God is independent, God is unchangeable, and God is eternal. There is no beginning and no end. But why does Moses just evaporate? Why doesn't Moses just fizzle out, entering into the presence of God? Is taking off his shoes enough? I don't think so. Our text tells us, verse 2. We're told in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord was in the bush. Not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. The mediator of God's presence is allowing him to stand on holy ground. Now, there are a lot of angels in the Bible, messengers of God. This is not one of them. When they have angels in the Bible, they speak for God. This one is speaking, and it is God. God speaks. This is what they call a theophany, uh, the manifestation of God. We know that because he says, take off your shoes, which is an act of worship. Whenever the angel of the Lord is in Scripture, there's worship. And you know it's a manifestation of God. But who is this? Who is, this, who is the angel of the Lord that's mediating, that, that is allowing Moses to come into the hot, holy presence of God? Well, a year later, religious leaders gathered around. And this upstart, new Jewish teacher came. And he was challenging them on their views. He was challenging them. This new leader was challenging them. And, he, and, and they say, do you know who we are? To this young Jewish prophet. We're children of Abraham. Are you greater than Abraham? The young Jewish teacher looks at them and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, but I am. And what did they do when that teacher said that? They tried to kill him. Why? Because he's claiming to be the self-existent one, the independent one, the eternal one, the I am. His name is Jesus. He says, I'm dependent on nothing for my existence. Everything depends on me. I am the eternal God. I am the mediator that Moses saw in the burning bush. Listen, it's only through the mediator that this fiery, hot, pure, holy God could love you Forgive you and be known. It is only through Jesus Christ. This personal encounter of Moses changes him through a real liberator and through the true redeemer. And his name is Jesus. 
Doesn't this whole story sound so familiar? A king's decree, all the male child should be killed, yet a child is still born who grows up and liberates his people. Read the gospel. One who's rejected by his own, yet goes into the wilderness, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and then comes back to set them free. Read the gospel. Someone who's under the sentence of condemnation and death, but through it and because of it, he dies, rises, and becomes the true mediator and prince and liberator. Do you know that in Luke chapter 9, Moses goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. He, he shows forth intrinsic glory to his three disciples. Who shows up? Moses and Elijah. Do you know what, do you know what is said there? Luke chapter 9, 31 says, they were discussing, you know what they were discussing? Jesus' departure, which was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. That word departure is the verb, Greek, for exodus. They were discussing his exodus. Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about his exodus. What does it mean? Listen, this is what it means. It means that as great as Moses was, Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the ultimate Moses, the ultimate mediator, the ultimate liberator, leading us an exodus, leading an exodus to liberate us from the slavery of sin, from the penalty of sin, from death and eternity in hell. That's the true Jesus. Moses, listen, this is what Tim Keller says, Moses liberated at the risk of his life, but Jesus liberates us at the cost of his life. Moses liberated at the risk of his life, but Jesus liberates us at the cost of his life by dying on the cross. Do you see? Exodus, the paradigm, a type, a redemptive work of Christ, revealing that we are sinners by nature. Because of the fall, we're in bondage to sin. Like the Israelites who are in bondage in Egypt, apart from Christ, we are in slavery to sin, whether we believe it or not. And the only way to be set free is the true and right and perfect Moses comes. God intervenes in his good providence in our lives, sets us free from bondage to liberation, slavery to rescue, captivity to freedom, and to worship. God did that in Exodus through Moses, the mediator. God does that in the New Testament to the true and better Moses, the better mediator, his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus secures the exodus of his people who were bound in sin, sets them free from the cross, and he is the ultimate liberator. But now listen, let me close with this. Unless you see that, you're in slavery. But, ah, if you see Jesus Christ, the eternal I am, as the ultimate mediator in your behalf, fiery hot in his holiness, and yet passionately inflamed in a desire to love you, to forgive you, to change you, you will never be free to worship. That's the story of the beginning of Genesis, Exodus. Sin, bondage, providence deliverer jesus is the ultimate moses and deliverer do you know him that way are you treasuring him that way is he setting your heart free to serve him to love him to obey him to worship him are you trusting in his providence for your life i pray you do so this table is the communion table the bread the broken body the blood the 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 cup the blood that was shed this represents the work of christ It's not just here representing his body and blood, but Christ is present through the power of his Holy Spirit calling us to come. If you've never trusted Christ, today is the day. Turn from sin, recognize your slavery, trust in Christ and Christ alone, and he will set you free. If you're a Christian and you're struggling, I do. 
and there are idols in your life, what is preeminent? What are you treasuring the most? Jesus is saying, I am the only one, the only God, that if you treasure completely, that you bow down and submit to totally, there'll be freedom. Freedom to be who God has wants you to be. Forgiven, mercy and grace to you. So the band's going to play. If you're new here, we're going to take communion. You're going to stay in your seat. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to repent of our sins to ourselves. And that's how we do it. And then we come and celebrate. So there's a time of reflection. There's a time of confession. There's a time of repentance. And then there's a celebration as we take the body and the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have been working in the lives of thousands and millions. You have kept your promises. Your good hand is sovereign over the world, even in the brokenness of the world. You are powerful enough, you are good enough to bend all things for your glory and our good. That is so hard sometimes, Lord, But we pray by your spirit, by this instruction of your word that we trust in your providence in our life. That we see the greatest need we have is to get out. To get out of bondage, get out of slavery, to be forgiven of our sins. And we see Jesus, the great liberator. So Father, as we worship you, as we worship Jesus, we pray you would set us free. And that we would worship you. You would be our God. We would be enslaved in a freedom way to you and to you alone. Father, we ask that you would move mightily by your spirit as we confess and repent and rejoice in what all that Jesus has done. In his great name we pray. Amen.